Welcome back, everybody, to Parkside Green's Bible Study. Uh, Pastor Steve here, just excited to join you in following all the action in this week's passage in the Gospel of Luke. It, it got me thinking about action movies. Uh, action films have been around for a century, I guess, uh, going back to the swashbuckling adventures and the westerns of the 1920s and 30s. And, and then there were the war and spy action films of the 1940s and 50s. Uh, they were followed by the James Bond and martial arts action films of the 60s and 70s. And then since then, really, Jackie Chan and Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis and Tom Cruise and others have made a fortune with action films as kind of a lucrative niche in the movie industry. Well, uh, this week's passage in Luke 19 is no action film, but it is filled with lots of action, lots of action that we can group under four action words. Number one, Sending and obeying. Sending and obeying, we see in verses 28 to 34. Secondly, riding and praising, we'll see in verses 35 to 40. Thirdly, we'll see weeping and warning in verses 41 to 44. And lastly, cleansing, teaching, and plotting in verses 45 to 48. So we begin with the action of sending and obeying in verses 28 to 34. You'll remember Jesus is now just a couple of miles away on his journey to Jerusalem, and he's nearing the villages of Bethphage and Bethany. Uh, they're on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, and uh, Jesus takes the very first action there. He sends two of his disciples, they aren't named in any of the Gospels, we don't know which two, and he tells them to go into the village that's in front of them, probably Bethany or Bethphage. And upon entering the village, they would find a colt that was tied, which no one had ever ridden on. It would be an animal suited to his royal entry into Jerusalem. And Jesus tells them uh, to untie the colt and bring it to where Jesus is. And he even prepares them for a potential future encounter with onlookers. If anyone asks them why they're untying the colt and leading the colt away, Jesus instructs them to say simply, the Lord has need of it, and that would settle it. Now, some say that Jesus pre-arranged things with the owner of the colt, and others say that Jesus used his divine foreknowledge to simply see into the future exactly what would happen. I think either is possible, and either tells us something special about Jesus. If Jesus prearranged it, then he was self-consciously orchestrating his entry into Jerusalem as the king prophesied in Zechariah 9.9. He would be coming to Jerusalem humble and mounted on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He was the prophesied Messiah. Or, on the other hand, if Jesus simply knew it because he was omniscient and could know all things, it is yet one more sign that he was, in fact, God in the flesh. And either way, the two disciples are called to obey Jesus and to take action themselves based on his word to them. And of course, when they do take action, the scenario unfolds exactly as Jesus said it would. They found the colt, 
Jesus, just as Jesus had said. And as they were untying the colt and, and the bystanders, or perhaps even the owners, asked them why they were doing that. So the two disciples obediently responded, just as Jesus had prepared them, by saying, the Lord has need of it. So Jesus did the sending, and his two disciples did the obeying, and then off they went with no further suspicions and no further questions. Next, in verses 35 to 40, we see the riding and the praising, the riding and the praising. When the two disciples brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks on top of it, perhaps to serve as a kind of like a homemade saddle. And then the two disciples set Jesus on the colt. Now the Gospels of Matthew and John tell us that this was to fulfill the prophecy, spoken centuries earlier that said, Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Jesus is the humble shepherd king of Zechariah 9.9, who comes to the holy city of Jerusalem, not riding on a big stallion, but instead riding on a colt that no one had ever ridden before. In fact, it's interesting, this is the only time in the whole Bible where we see Jesus riding. And as Jesus rode along, his disciples kind of rolled out the red carpet for him, so to speak. They expressed their, their homage and their submission to him, King Jesus, by spreading their cloaks on the road that was ahead of him. And then as Jesus descended down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. They're extolling God for all the miracles that Jesus had performed. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Now you may remember way back in Luke 1, 32 and 33, that the angel Gabriel said that the Lord God would give to Jesus the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So now the day has come. King Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem, and a big circle of his disciples are using what seems to be Psalm 118, verse 126, to bless him. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The whole crowd of disciples also exclaims, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, there be no immediate peace on earth, and certainly not in Jerusalem, which we're going to see in verses 43 and 44. That city is headed for destruction. But according to God's plan, there is peace in heaven. Well, when all the disciples add the phrase, glory in the highest, that is just too much for some of the Pharisees who are in the crowd. And they begin to ask Jesus to rebuke his disciples. Don't, don't let them say that. Stop them. But Jesus answered his critics that if his disciples were silent, then the very stones of the earth would cry out that Jesus is king. I mean, if there hadn't been human rejoicing, then inanimate nature would have filled in and joined all of creation in praising its wondrous creator. 
the praise is unstoppable. Praise is going to break out somewhere. It's interesting, isn't it, that at other times we've seen Jesus command people to not speak about him, but here he definitely pulls back the curtain and acknowledges very openly that he is the king who is absolutely worthy of praise. Pharisees could not squelch the true and right joy of this occasion. Jesus did the writing and the multitude of his disciples did the praising. Then the action continues, but it also slows down a bit in verses 41 to 44, where we see Jesus weeping and warning, weeping and warning. This section is unique to the Gospel of Luke, and it's kind of jarring, isn't it, to go from sudden shift from the multitude loudly praising God to Jesus weeping. When Jesus draws near and he saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it. What's often called the triumphal entry is also a tearful entry, perhaps more in the sense of a weeping and lament than streams of actual tears. Now, you know that moment when you're approaching a city and, and you can just begin to see its skyline. I think about when we drive through Chicago or when we're maybe approaching Cincinnati from the Kentucky side coming down the hill on I-71 and uh, it's just all there before you. Well, I had the chance once to go to the Mount of Olives and from there there is just this beautiful vista of the city of Jerusalem. You can see the temple, you can see all the buildings from there. And now Jesus has arrived there. After his long journey, he finally is close enough to see the city of Jerusalem, and he wept over it. He knew the city would reject their Messiah, and it made Jesus sad. Would that you, Jerusalem, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. I mean, this day, your Messiah and King is arriving. But the things that make for peace, they're hidden from your eyes. And that's sad, which is why Jesus lamented it. It's not that Jesus was somehow sentimental about Jerusalem or he saw it through rose-colored glasses. No, he's very realistic. He knows exactly uh, what Jerusalem is. Remember what he said in, in earlier in Luke 13, 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. You would not. Jesus knew exactly what those in Jerusalem would do to him in the days ahead. How they're going to send him to a shameful, excruciating death. And yet still, he has tender compassion toward them. He weeps over them. Rather than lamenting over his own crucifixion, which is right on the horizon, he laments over his rejectors. It's amazing. Later in Romans 9, verses 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul would reflect that same attitude when he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For my kinsmen, according to the flesh, Israelites, 
who have not yet come to trust in Jesus as their Messiah. God's heart for the lost should also be our heart for the lost. And in addition to weeping, we see that Jesus also issued a warning, uh, a warning about days that would come upon Jerusalem when their enemies would set up a barricade around them and surround them and hem them in and, and tear them and their children to the ground, besides tearing down all their beautiful stone buildings, which would include the temple. Why? Why would that be? Because Jerusalem did not know the day of their visitation. The reason why Jesus warns Jerusalem it will be destroyed by Titus and the Romans, as it happens about 40 years later in AD 70, was that they did not recognize or embrace the long-awaited Messiah that God had sent to them. Now, if you want to read the details of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, uh, they're found in the writings of the Jewish historian Josephus, and it's sobering which is why Jesus warns them beforehand. And the people's ignorance, their not knowing the time of their visitation by the Messiah, appears to be willful and blameworthy. Jerusalem was heading down a road that would not lead to peace, but it would lead to destruction. I mean, divine judgment was coming in the very near future and in fact, a taste of divine judgment is going to take place right then and there. As Jesus enters the temple, which is the holy place of worship, of course, he began to drive out those who were selling animals to be sacrificed there. There was an area within the temple complex, most likely it was the court of Gentiles, and it had become a sort of a commercial market where Jews who were traveling to Jerusalem could exchange their currency for the temple currency. So they could pay the half shekel temple tax, uh, as well as being able to buy animals there to sacrifice them in Jerusalem at the temple. So they had taken what was supposed to be a house of prayer for all people, as we read about in Isaiah 56, 7, and they had made it into a den of robbers, as we read about in Jeremiah 7, 11. It's interesting, isn't it? We notice how Jesus quotes scripture to justify his actions. And in this way, Jesus, the king who was coming in the name of the Lord, he restores the temple to its intended purpose by driving out the animals and the money changers. But cleansing the temple was not Jesus's only action here. Once he had driven out all the commercial activity, he taught the people daily there in the temple. Uh, if you go back to Luke 2.49, it's his father's house, and that has become sort of Jesus's classroom for teaching the people daily. And the next two chapters, Luke 20 and 21, will give us details on what Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. Uh, it's the parable of the wicked tenants. It's what's to be rendered to Caesar and what's to be rendered to God. It talks about future resurrection and how the Christ is actually, paradoxically, David's son, how the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed, signs of Jesus' return, 
and the way to be spiritually awake at all times. So there's a lot to look forward to. But the Jewish leaders were in no mood to be taught by Jesus or to have him teaching the people daily right there in the temple. So while Jesus was teaching, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy Jesus. Any future trial that Jesus would be taken to would certainly find Jesus guilty of a death sentence. They're just finding the way to destroy him. So the Jewish leaders are plotting a way to take Jesus's life, but the thing that holds them back right now at least is Jesus's popularity with the people. We are told that all the people were hanging on his words as he taught them. See, God was using the people's adoration of Jesus to keep the Jewish leaders from taking immediate action to destroy him. As we back up and look at the big picture, I think we can see on the one hand, right, there's the big crowd of Jesus's disciples who are praising Jesus, and, and you've got the common Jewish people there in the temple just hanging on Jesus's words. And on the other hand, we see the Jewish leaders decisively rejecting Jesus. Those leaders sought to squelch Jesus's disciples from praising him and rejoicing in him. They did not recognize the day of their visitation from their king, their Messiah, and that's going to bring a day of judgment on them. They misunderstood the purpose of the temple, and in fact, they misused it for commercial activity like a marketplace, and they were seeking to destroy Jesus. So as always, there is a divided response to Jesus and his ministry. And once more, there are just many, many possible ways that God's word can apply to our lives today. I'm sure you're going to sort those out in your excellent small groups. Uh, but as we wrap up this week, maybe just consider four possible applications. Number one, like the two disciples with the colt, when Jesus tells us by his word to do something, trust him and obey him. Trust him and obey him. Number two, like the multitude of Jesus' disciples, rejoice and praise God for sending King Jesus to bring peace in heaven. Rejoice and praise God for sending King Jesus to bring peace in heaven. Thirdly, like Jesus, weep over those who were lost, warn them about coming judgment, and teach them about Jesus. Weep, warn, and teach. And fourth and finally, thank Jesus for driving out what is bad and restoring what is good. Thank Jesus for driving out what is bad and restoring what is good. Let's pray. God, we thank you that no matter what assignment you send us on, that you have gone before us and you are with us. We thank you also for graciously calling us to join those who rejoice and praise you for sending King Jesus to bring us true peace. We thank you for Jesus's perfect example, weeping for the lost, warning them about judgment, and teaching them your ways. And we thank you that Jesus boldly 
powerfully drives out what is contrary to your purposes and restores the good that you intend. We pray in the name of Jesus, the blessed King, who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen.